Thank you, Kathleen. Appreciate it. Can I set these over here for now so I don't lose them? So I might set other stuff over there. If the I just I'm picturing the keyboard falling. You've seen those YouTube videos where like someone sets a Bible and the keyboard just yeah. All right. If that happens now, I'll feel even worse because I predicted it. Uh, <laughs> so this morning I am uh, excited to be sharing with you, and uh, I see new faces, folks that I met today, folks I haven't met yet. Um, so that's exciting. Hope I get to meet you afterwards if I haven't already. Um, one of the things I get to do today is preach uh, a message that uh, is all from the just my heart, what the Lord's been doing. Uh, we go through series of uh, sermons here at Redeemer, and we're kind of between series right now. And so uh, this is what we would call a one-off or something along those lines. Uh, but it's exciting to me because this is something that God's been dealing with in my own heart and kind of teaching me about. It, it wasn't me approaching the verse and, and having to figure out what I liked about it and what it says and study it and get it all ready and then apply it to my own life before I preach it. This was something I was already struggling with, right? I was already asking God to teach me, uh, to help me grow. And so let me give you a little bit of background first before we jump into just this random passage at the end of 2 Peter. Uh, and yes, I'll say 2 Peter from time to time, forgetting that I'm supposed to say 2 Peter, uh, but just roll with it, okay? Um, what we have are letters that Peter has written, has written, and this is the last chapter of the second one. Uh, is possibly Peter's last epistle. When he wrote it, I think he knew that this was, this was near the end for him uh, in life. And so he was writing with that passion and with that thought in mind. He knew his death was imminent, uh, and he was offering words uh, to challenge, but also words of warning. Uh, and, and he was challenging his readers to steadfastly pursue godliness. And so we see in 1 Peter, and we see in the beginning of 2 Peter, we see him encouraging them to pursue godliness, to kind of, it's that kind of get your act together, like stick with it, keep, keep leaning into Jesus because he is the source uh, of our godliness and there's no godliness without him. And so our passage today in chapter 3 of 2 Peter encourages us uh, to look back at the Old Testament, to the prophets, to the apostles to look around us at what people are saying, the world we live in, kind of the, the day and age that we're in, and then to look forward with anticipation uh, to the coming of the Lord. And that idea of anticipation has been uh, something I've grappled with a little bit lately and been thinking about. I remember, I don't know if your child, I don't know what your childhood was like. My childhood was kind of that traditional, um, you know, idea of uh, I was the youngest of four. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, which means really she worked harder than my dad. Um, and so life for me was, I dealt with some anticipation. 5.15, 5 o'clock, 5.15 every afternoon during the week was either the best part of my day or the worst part of my day, all right? And it all depended on if my sins had been forgiven. Now, I don't mean by God, I mean by mom, Okay. So if dad came home and mom and I weren't quite straight, uh, it was not the best part of my day. But if uh, mom and I were on good terms, I had been, you know, a relatively good child that day, uh, mom was happy, then when dad came home, that meant joy and dinner, which usually go hand in hand for me. Uh, 
<laughs> so there was that anticipation, right? And so I would, I remember thinking like, dad's going to be home soon. And that was either like a, yay, dad's going to be home soon. Or it was a, oh, dad's going to be home soon. Like, what's going to happen? How's he going to respond when he hears what I, what I did, right? Um, and so anticipation can be a powerful thing for us. I know uh, a few of you were able to meet my adult daughters last week. My older girls, Grace and Olivia, were here. Uh, we went to London. Was that just this past week? Uh, I'm losing track of time uh, pretty quickly. But I know that leading up to their visit, there was this anticipation. I was so excited about them coming, and we kept, uh, we kept like, spilling the beans uh, with our younger girls. We were trying to keep it a secret, and we kept saying things, and Tara would look at me, and I'd look at her, like, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. Did they hear it, right? And we were able to actually keep it a secret, so I'm surprised. I think it was more of them being oblivious than it was us being good secret keepers. But there was an anticipation uh, to them coming. And so uh, today's passage is talking to us about the coming day of the Lord, now, theologically, we would call this eschatology. And I'll be honest, when I was younger, uh, even as a younger pastor, I kind of avoided eschatology because the people I knew who were into eschatology were usually extra. They were usually like way over. Every sermon they preached was about eschatology. And then there were, you know, the other preachers that I kind of slid over into that camp where I just didn't talk about it much. And it was kind of to be avoided, uh, not intentionally. No one would say like, oh yeah, we don't talk about that. It just, in practice, it wasn't very talked about. Um, and, and so I've seen it done well, or rarely have I seen it done well. I've seen it done poorly, and I've seen it kind of not done at all when it comes to thinking about the end times, thinking about uh, what it looks like for Christ to return. But when we think about the gospel, a lot of what we think about, uh, the, the way that I think it, I hear it referred to often these days is the gospel is kind of uh, four parts to the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And there are books, loads of books written about creation and debating this aspect or that aspect. Uh, there's the idea of the fall and sin. We don't have to really convince most people that we live in a broken, sinful world. Uh, and then uh, that idea of redemption is really the, the crux. That's where the cross kind of comes into the picture, and Christ redeeming us. We see pictures of that throughout the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. But then that restoration aspect, we'll talk about the here and now, the daily, day in, day out, how Jesus can restore us in our relationships with one another and how life can be different here because of Christ. But we often just kind of fly past the idea of what does eternity hold? What, what is the future uh, going to be like? And so... Um, the passage we're looking at today is often used to preach judgment. It's often used to preach uh, and teach about the apocalypse and uh, cataclysmic events. Um, but I don't believe Peter was writing to elicit dread. I don't believe he was writing to, uh, to cause this judgmental attitude or, or this fear um, and, and dread of Christ's return but rather for his beloved, right? He refers to the, 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 uh, the audience that he's writing to, he refers to them as beloved. And so for them, I think he's wanting legitimately for them to be motivated, equipped, grateful, encouraged, and blessed by this passage. He wants us to live in anticipation of the coming return of the king, all right? That was not just a Peter Jackson, uh, Tolkien thing. Um, 
the, the king, the return of the king uh, has existed long before uh, any of those books or movies. So anticipation, as we think about it, I want you to keep that word in your mind and uh, let's think through it as we look over our passage uh, today. So hope you still have your Bibles handy. Turn uh, back if you need to, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Keep your Bibles open there with you. We'll walk through a few verses and we'll talk about it. Um, and so let me, let me listen to my own words of instruction and open my Bible. Kathleen read it for us. I've got it on paper in front of me, but I like to open and read it from the Word. So uh, I'm just going to jump through these first few verses as we get started and give you uh, the, the Dan Amplified version, all right? So this is now the second letter that I'm writing. Okay, that makes sense. This is two Peters, so he's referring back to first Peter, or one Peter. Sorry, there it is again. In both of them, so this is a recap, if you will, of really everything he's written in one Peter and two Peter. He says, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He calls them beloved, and he wants to remind them. Now, it's interesting to me that Peter, when I think of Peter, if you just say, what, what do you remember about Peter? Like, He's this guy that, like, just in a fit of rage probably pulls out a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. But now we see he's softened. He's tender, right? Uh, Jesus and, and the, the faith that Peter has in Jesus has had this life, this effect over the life of Peter. And we see him being caring and tender uh, towards his beloved. And he says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Um, Peter wanted to stimulate their thinking so that they would not recall I'm sorry, so that they would recall what they were previously taught um, and not pray, fall prey to these newfangled uh, false teachers. So you see that in the first part of this book as well as in uh, 1 Peter, you see this idea of false teachers and he's wanting them to be protected uh, from the false teaching. More specifically, he wanted them to remember um, the words of the prophets and the apostles. What Peter says here in this passage, reaches back to the conclusion of chapter 1. So if you can, like I can, look across the page to chapter 1, you'll see in verses uh, like 16 through 18, he talks about uh, the, the prophets and the prophetic testimony, or I'm sorry, in the, in the apostles in verses 16 and 18, and then the prophets in verses 19 through 21. Here he kind of flips it. He talks about the prophets and the apostles as opposed to the apostles and the prophets. But I think you see the repetition here of him pointing back uh, to what they know. This is the faith that they are, are, should be clinging to. Um, he circled back to the prophets and the apostles. Uh, he reversed the order. And then we see in chapter 2, the false path and teaching put forth by, uh, by the opponents, which Peter exhorted them to avoid. Here the readers were reminded to return to the teaching of the prophets and the apostles so that their teaching, especially about the culmination of history, would not be forgotten. They were forgetting they, they were so caught up in those days. They had persecution going on. It was intense. You know, I heard a guy talking about persecution these days for most of us in this country and in the Western world. You know, persecution can be like, oh, I don't get to pray in school or, I, you know, or people pick on me occasionally because they know I'm a Christian. They make jokes. Um, but we know in the rest of the world, in other parts of the world, persecution is intense. And they were dealing with a very intense persecution. People were dying uh, regularly because of their faith in Christ. And so it was easy for them in that to forget the hope of the future, to forget that Jesus was coming back. Um, 
So he tells them, remember, verse 2, he says, remember, we're forgetful people. Uh, and, and this idea of remembering really goes throughout Scripture when you look at it. All of the Old Testament feasts were for the point of remembering. They were to look back at something, to see how God had provided. And so, again, Peter is reminding them about the prophets, about those festivals, about the past, and saying, look at these things and remember, make sure that you remember. And then even the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about uh, and take together a little later on, is done to remember who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so how often do you build time into your day to stop and remember? Right? I know that's, that, that, that's something God's been working on for me is because I, I just tend to see what's in front of me and focus on what's in front of me. And, and occasionally I'll know what's coming, whether it's my girls coming to visit or something on the calendar, and, I, and I'll look forward. But stopping to remember helps us, I think, to look forward properly. So Peter's telling them to remember. And then in verse 3, he says, knowing this, first of all. Now, this isn't chronologically, first of all, but, but preeminence. He's saying this is, this is of importance. And I do believe that this passage, what he's about to say, this verse these next two verses, are really kind of the, uh, a hinge pin for this whole chapter that we're looking at. He's going to talk about uh, the scoffers, and what Peter says eloquently is scoffers going to scoff, all right? That's what scoffers do. They scoff. You're going to have scoffers come, and what are they going to do? They're going to scoff, all right? Um, so I, I don't know if you've been called a scoffer. It's not a, a word we, you know, we tend to read it in literature, um, but that's what scoffers do. They scoff, okay? They pick on things. They, they spit shade, all right? I, I know that's like a hip-hop term. I, you know, can you tell I'm way into hip-hop? Um, but they're, they're scoffing, all right? And so this is a major reason for Peter's writing. Verse 4 then says, where is the promise of his coming? This is the way they're scoffing. This is what they're asking. They're, they're saying it with derision. You can hear it in their voice. <sighs> Silly Christians. Where's this coming that you're talking about? Where is this promise of his coming? And I believe that there's a danger in us giving into that. There's a danger in us letting that get to us. And Peter's warning them about that. And so this coming day of the Lord that we're looking at, um, it makes me think of like my daughter's birthday was, well, my, daughter, my, my daughter Olivia, 21, turned 21 yesterday. And so... I remember wishing her a happy birthday, and, you know, often on people's birthday, you say, like, oh, this is your day, hey, you know, or a graduation day, someone's been working hard to earn a degree, and they're graduating, and people are like, hey, this is your day, right? So in a very small way, we kind of have that idea of, like, hey, this is your day. You, you've worked toward this. You've struggled to get this job, and now you've got the job. This is your day, right? Well, this is going to be Jesus's day, and, and this is going to be even bigger, I believe, in, the, in the, the history of the world than his first coming. Now, not bigger in that it will have more effect because you really can't separate his first coming from his second coming. But it is something that's going to bring together and culminate all of history. History existed and things existed leading up to the birth of Christ. But when his return comes, what we see in the rest of this chapter is that things will change drastically in the world we live in. 
So what was Peter's argument for why they should remember? What was his argument against these scoffers? And so I want us to see a few things as we uh, work through this. We've already looked at verses 1 through 3. But in this, we see that, first of all, his word tells of it. God's word tells of, um, his, of this coming day of the Lord. We see Peter reminding us again, stirring us up. Look at Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, they talk about the end times. And so Peter's reminding them, this is not a new thing for us. This is an old thing. You need to think back to that. But then he also says it's also a current thing, and he points to the apostles. Um, the Lord had prophesied even of his own coming a second time. And then Paul, in his writing, had, had spoken more than once as if it were going to happen very soon, right? Because I believe God wants us to see it as imminent. And I know that that's not something I often see as imminent. I'm like, yeah, it's going to happen one day, but not in my lifetime. But these apostles, Peter, Paul, others, they lived life with that expectation, knowing that it could happen anytime. By the way, this is a freebie. I learned this this week. I was um, pretty interested to, to this. I found this really interesting. Joy to the world, right? The great Christmas song we sing. It's not a Christmas song. We sing it at Christmas, but it was actually written. Isaac Watts wrote it about the second coming of Christ. Um, Verse 3 in particular says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If you go back and read the lyrics, like all of them, not just verse 3, but if you read the lyrics to that hymn, you'll, you'll see it's, it's plain. It's right there. It's about his second coming. And again, his first coming has to happen in order for his second coming to be a second coming. Um, so they're, they're inextricably linked. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. And that was just kind of a freebie. Um, didn't offer a whole lot to what I'm telling, but I, I did find it interesting. So first of all, his word declares it. Uh, we see that in verses one through three. Then in verses four through seven, he says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So not only does his word tell us, but his works support it as well. His works point to it. Um, the scoffers here are saying like all things have just been the same ever since creation. Um, and so Peter gives really three arguments in this passage against the scoffers, refuting their notion that God does not intervene in the world. And I find his first one a little ironic, but his first argument shows an internal flaw in their own worldview um, because they claimed continuity since creation. Um, but the creation of the world itself represents God intervening. It represents divine intervention into history. Uh, when they spoke of creation, they referred to a new work of God. Further, when we read Genesis carefully, it's made, um, it's made apparent that the world was chaotic, right? The Bible says in Genesis 1 that, you know, the waters were there, they were without form, there was, it was void, and, and he, through the power of his word, God spoke that chaos into order, and he brought order, and so he intervened, um, and he made it habitable for human life. 
The present stability of the world can be traced back to God's intervention, and hence there's no reason to doubt that he will intervene again. So we see God intervening there. So that, that's creation. But then his second argument that we see in verse 6 brings in the idea of the flood. If at creation God introduced stability in the world by separating the waters during the flood, the chaos returned. Right? So he took the waters that were hovering over the deep and he brought order to them. And then when the flood happens, you see water again used and now chaos is kind of brought back for the sake of God uh, judging the world at that time uh, in, a, in a, a picture of the judgment to come. But there's also that picture of Christ as the ark through which we can be saved. Any of us uh, can be saved. And so his second argument points to the flood. So if they, if they can't see it in creation, surely, hopefully, they can see it in the flood. Uh, and Peter's making that second argument. And then his third argument in verse 7 uh, chapter three, or yeah, chapter three, verse seven contains Peter's third argument against the regularity of the world. God intervened at creation, intervened at the flood, and He will intervene again in the future. And the future catastrophe uh, will be like the first, but instead of water, which He promises He won't use again to judge the world, we're told in this passage that it will be fire. And there's an intensity to this, right? Even as I'm talking about it, um, it it's. I want to downplay it kind of. I want to, you know, brush past the, the tough parts to look at because we live in a world, I think, that naturally just wants to sanitize things. It wants to soften things. It wants to make things more palatable. And it can be tough for us at times. Um, you know, I, I, I saw, um, I think it's a movie called Bruce Almighty. I don't know. <laughs> it's, I, I always use the dumbest movies. You know, people use like Schindler's List and their sermons and all these like, Movies that make you sound intelligent and respectable, and I use like Jim Carrey. Um, but in there, there's a guy, and it you know it turns out to be Morgan Freeman uh, playing God. But he's he comes in the form of a homeless guy holding signs, you know. And I I think of those pictures you see in the movies and on TV of people holding the signs that say the end is near. And and I think even as a Christian, I'm guilty of kind of in my mind scoffing at you know like. You know, poor guy, I'm sure he loves Jesus, but he's out here wasting his time. He's out here, you know. And so we just, we look down on that kind of thing. Um, but as believers, we do believe some pretty miraculous, astonishing things when we think about it. So not just creation, not just the flood, uh, but to consider God himself coming to earth, being born in a stable to a 15-year-old virgin in the middle of nowhere. He didn't travel very far. He was murdered, he was buried, and then he came back to life, right? Like, this is foundational to our faith, what we believe, and yet it's easy for the world to become scoffers at this. And I think it's easy for us uh, to try to sidestep some of the difficulties, some of the, some of the astonishing nature of what it is that we believe. But not only did he die not only was he buried, not only did he rise from the dead, but he does promise that he's coming again. Um, it's interesting, I read this past week, that for every 30 verses of Scripture, of all of it, Genesis to Revelation, for every 30 verses of Scripture, there's one verse that alludes to or points to or directly speaks to his return, his second coming. That's a lot. 
He talks a lot more about his second coming than his first coming. He, the, the, the Bible talks a lot more about his second coming than many other things that we look at in Scripture. And so we see that his word declares it, his works support it, um, but we also see that he's merciful in his timing. He's merciful in his delaying of it. Verses 8 through 10, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's not late. He's not procrastinating. He's not missing any schedules. Uh, There's nothing in his diary that he's forgetting and having to go back to. He's merciful. He's being patient. And this passage, you you could spend, people have written books and books about this, uh, these few verses here. Uh, They can be controversial. Some people look to them and say, well, this is proof that everyone will be saved, uh, which is the idea of universalism. And so it doesn't matter what you believe, that everybody will go to heaven when they die. But we can see from the rest of Scripture that that's not what this is teaching. So we do see Peter's addressing believers. He's calling them beloved. He's addressing um, those who have put their faith in Christ or at least a part of that family are around that and are growing in that. And in his patience, he's waiting. Uh, There's places in John 17 and elsewhere where Jesus himself talks about the fact that he will not lose any of the sheep that his father has given him. He won't lose any of them. And I believe this similarly is a picture of saying like, all of those who are to be saved, all of those sheep that the father is giving the son will be saved. And so for the ones that aren't saved yet, that's why he's being patient. That's why he has not returned yet. Um, It's for that simple reason that there are more uh, to be saved. We also see this picture of one day being as a thousand years and a thousand years being as one day. That, that's a simile, right? That's not meant to be a mathematical equation. I think some people can look to this and try to explain certain aspects of creation or timing. Um, and I think that's unfounded, at least with this passage, because he's just painting that picture that God created time. He lives outside of time. He's not bound by it. And so we can't expect uh, the way he operates within time to be the way we operate within time. So we're being told here by Peter that God is patient and he's merciful in his timing and he hasn't returned yet simply because there are still more that the Lord wants to save. So what? All right, so where does this leave us? Um, Peter's argument to this point is building to our last point today uh, and the point I want to leave us with and I hope will be transformative for you as it has been uh, for me as I've thought through it as it's still continuing uh, to change me and to do work uh, in my own heart. But I want us to look at verses 11, 12, and 13. (coughs) Excuse me. And see. I want us to see that God's people live in view of the coming day of the Lord. We as God's people need to live in view of it. We need to keep it in mind. We need to remember it. It needs to be something that affects our day-to-day lives. Let's pick up in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How often do you spend time thinking about the new heavens and the new earth? It's interesting to me that I feel like we wait until funerals to talk a lot about heaven. You definitely hear it talked about there, right? She's in a better place now. He's no longer suffering. And those, we say those things to comfort us. And I do believe they're comforting. They're true. When you're talking about a believer, they're, they're true. I don't want to belittle that at all. But when we relegate our talk about heaven to mourning and to sadness... I think naturally we, we tend to want to avoid sadness. We tend to want to avoid sad things uh, and mourning. So we, by nature, begin to avoid what makes us sad. And heaven becomes the sad consolation prize for life here on earth. And that's not heaven at all, right? That, that's not heaven. When it's a consolation prize, when it's kind of like, well, yeah, life's great. But then when we die, well, at least we get heaven, you know, it, that'd, be, that'd be okay, right? I mean, that, that's how I know I sometimes subconsciously think about heaven. I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't write that in a theological paper of some sort because I know it's not what the Bible teaches. But it is often how I live my life. There's a, um, there's a book by a guy named Randy Alcorn, which has been massive for me. If you are reading, if you're thinking about heaven, if you want to know more about heaven, I don't know a better book out there right now. Um, about the topic of heaven uh, than his book. It's appropriately titled Heaven, um, and it's by Randy Alcorn. But uh, it's no wonder with the way we look at heaven, the way we look at life and death, it's no wonder that Al Alcorn has, um, he tells the story of dozens of Christians who admitted a fear of heaven, like an actual fear of it. Um, one pastor's wife admitted to him that as a child in Sunday school, uh, she was told that when she got to heaven, she wouldn't know anyone or anything from earth. And it terrified her. And so as a kid, that was, the, that was the trajectory that her views of heaven were based on, was that she wouldn't know or recognize anyone or anything. I mean, that's pretty scary. He had an actual pastor friend who confessed to him, whenever I think about heaven, I get depressed. So when Alcorn asked him why, he replied, I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's all so terribly boring. Now, if you've seen movies, if you've looked at whatever, um, I'm getting there. I'll get it. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> so, um, anyway, yeah, that, that idea of like floating around like this constant never-ending worship service where we're just going to sing and sing and sing. I just singing this morning and knowing I'm preaching, it's like my voice is already a little weak, right? I know in heaven we'll have perfect bodies and all that. Uh, but I, I also think while our praise of God will never end, it won't just be singing. It won't just be musical. Sometimes it'll just be our words. Sometimes it'll be our actions. We're going to live on a restored earth, right? The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and I can't do justice with the time we have today to talk about all of that, but that's why I would recommend to you um, Randy Alcorn's book. Um, I actually, I'll just play my hand here. Um, 
I have a copy that I really want to give away. I bought it this week so that I could give it away. Um, so if you're thinking like, yeah, that's me. I'm the one who wants to read that book. Just see me afterwards and I'll, I'll give it to you. All right. And if there's a big long line, then we'll find a way to order more of them because uh, I actually have funding provided to me to provide resources to you. So um, we can get more than just one copy, but that's all I ordered this week. Anyway, um, yeah, the, this, uh, this picture I thought was, this is Gary Larson, a, a, a comic strip by Gary Larson called The Far Side. And so here he is in heaven and he's just sitting there bored on a cloud thinking like, I wish I brought a Mac. And, and unfortunately, like, that's really what we have to deal with when it comes to what's often put into our minds about heaven. These wrong views of heaven most likely formed in us by television and movies. Um, obviously, those more than the word of God lead to this kind of uh, misunderstanding. And while we chuckle at that, I hope as believers that makes you a little bit sad, right? To think that we sometimes think that so you know others who don't know Christ, who don't uh, know of heaven or, or believe in the second coming of Christ are going to see heaven as just this boring place. We get excited for holidays, for concerts, for um, puppy dogs, right? We get excited about those things as we anticipate them. But when's the last time we got excited about heaven? There's um, a guy named Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan Back during the 17th century, he, was, um, he wrote a lot about meditation. He wrote, he actually wrote a lot uh, about a lot. Um, but he loved Jesus. Um, and he suffered chronically from kidney stones, headaches, bleeding, toothaches, swollen feet, and a myriad of other chronic ailments. Yet God used him mightily to evangelize almost an entire town. Kidderminster, England. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But Kidderminster, England. Uh, the city consisted of over 2,000 adults plus children, and, and practically the entire town came to faith in Christ through Baxter's ministry. He was a prolific writer. Uh, some scholars believe that he wrote more theological treaties and books than any other English writer in the history of theology. In his book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, he tells of what provided much endurance and motivation for him in the midst of the suffering that he was dealing with physically. Baxter said, that he would spend at least 30 minutes every day meditating on heaven. Just thinking about heaven. And that one got me because I thought, you know, in preparing for this sermon, I probably have spent 30 minutes a day preparing for heaven. And leading up to that this, this week and these past couple weeks, all the time in my life combined that I've spent thinking about heaven could probably, you know, maybe fill an hour or two. John Piper says, confident expectation of a world of righteousness empowers and motivates us for peace and purity in the present world. Peter tells us in this passage to think about heaven. Look back, remember that it's been a story. It's been told to us all along. It's not something new that we're being told. But remember to look forward. Remember to anticipate. So I want to close with a tweet my sermon professor in seminary would be so disappointed in me uh, for bringing a tweet into this. But uh, I saw this this past week, and I thought it was perfect to share with you today. Uh, it's a tweet, some thoughts about heaven, and I hope that it will prime the pump and hopefully help us think of 
Help us think more and more biblically about heaven. So, seven truths about heaven. We will see God face to face. Not just Moses. He wasn't the only one who gets to see God face to face. Two, we will have physical bodies. God will give us new bodies that aren't uh, hindered by sin. They're not broken. They don't break down. Three, we will never be bored. Heaven will not be a boring place. You won't think to yourself, I wish I'd brought a magazine. We will recognize others. We will grow in knowledge. Even in heaven, we'll continue to learn and grow. Six, we will never sin. And seven, we will have inexplicable joy. Any proper thoughts about heaven should lead us to gratitude towards Jesus. He's the only way. There's there's no other way to heaven. There's no other name under heaven, Acts tells us, whereby we must be saved. Each week here at Redeemer, we observe the Lord's Supper together. 